This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome on this beautiful morning. It feels a little bit like fall out there, which is nice. Hi, I'm Henry Brady. I'm the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy here at UC Berkeley. It's a tremendous pleasure to be here this morning with this distinguished panel. Uh, this is an, another activity sponsored uh, by the Class of 68 Center for um, Civility and Democratic Engagement, which is a center we have at the Goldman School. Let me start by introducing the moderator for today, who is Dick Beers. As you can see from the program flyer, he's a member of the centers, the Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement's advisory board. He was ASUC president when he was a student here at Cal, and he went on to an extraordinary career in media and television. Uh, but he's now retired, but not really. Uh, Dick's doing all sorts of other things. He's a fierce advocate, trusted advisor, and philanthropist for the campus, especially in the College of Natural Resources, where he's been a member of the advisory board for two decades. He's championing Berkeley in all sorts of areas, especially in the Beers Environmental Leadership Program, which he supports uh, with his wife, Carolyn. Uh, this has been a program that has trained people from around the world in leadership in development activities. In addition to the many hats he has at Berkeley, Dick's current business activities include serving on the board of the San Jose Giants, an affiliate, a minor league affiliate of the San Francisco Giants, and his role as senior advisor for Revolution Foods, which promotes nutritious meals for schools throughout the nation, including uh, a partnership with the San Francisco Unified School District to provide healthier school meals to its diverse population of students. So Dick is a guy doing a lot of fascinating and interesting things. He's going to lead our panel today. So let's welcome Dick Beers. Thank you very much, Dean. And we, we certainly do have the A-team involved with our panel today. We have a world-class scientist in Dan Kamen. We have a committed citizen activist who has been successful in many fields in Tom Steyer. And we were scheduled to have a former lieutenant governor, Cal graduate, and now congressman, uh, John Garamendi. But as you can imagine, John has had to cancel at the last moment and stay in Washington. Uh, I think, in a sense, we can take uh, John's absence today as perhaps his contribution to the panel in that we probably shouldn't be looking to Congress to solve problems like <laughs> climate change. No. No, I've been pleased in the past to serve as a moderator of a number of panels, but I want to tell you that never have I been involved with a panel where I've had more advice coming in from many different places about topics that they, uh, everyone would hope we would cover. So accordingly, I'd like to give you perhaps a little bit of a context for the panel, which I think we'll have today. Number one, uh, as a media executive, I was very, very frustrated by what I considered false equivalency by the media where they give equal amounts of time, is climate change a problem or is it not a problem? I'm going to go out on the limb today and say climate change is a problem. Now, by saying that, by saying that, I don't want to imply that there are not many, many unanswered questions. The pace of which climate change is taking place, issues like reciprocal feedback, 
how do we deal with it? I think a key question is just how much time we have, how it's going to impact rainfall and the like. So my uh, proposal here is today, climate change is a problem. We're going to focus very much on the nuances we have to face, the unanswered questions, and then what we do about it. Uh, I think that one of my greatest concerns on the issue of climate change is the issue of timing. I think I was a history major at Berkeley. I, I love history, read a lot still. If you look at American history, I think you can say we oftentimes respond late to an issue. Uh, slavery is obviously one, uh, Hitler's aggression, environmental degradation, and the like. Uh, Winston, I'm sure most of you have heard uh, Winston Churchill's famous observation, you can always count on the United States to do the right thing after trying everything else first. <laughs> now, in that issue, I think one of the great challenges we face with climate change is exactly how much time do we have. Uh, I've asked that Dan Kamen uh, be our first speaker today, because of his involvement from a scientific standpoint. He has been very, very involved. His, he has one of those CVs that kind of steps off the page. If you read it before talking to him, you're almost intimidated to ask a question. But we're happy to have him at Berkeley. He's been very involved with the Energy and, uh, the energy and Resources Group, also the Goldman School. And he was one of the people that led to... Uh, Berkeley's receiving the largest grant, I think, of any type that has been received by a university, which is for the Energy and Biosciences Institute here at Berkeley. He's also been involved with the, uh, the Climate Change Panel that was co-recipient with Al Gore of the Nobel Peace Prize. So, and then our next speaker is Tom Steyer. Uh, I, first of all, I would encourage you all to read the article about two weeks ago in The New Yorker, which very heavily features Tom, and if you're like Carolyn and me, I'm sure you know you've got a big stack of New Yorkers somewhere in your house, and you haven't read as many articles as you thought you should. So I would encourage when you go home or through the wonders of Google, find the article involving Tom, and his, you'll learn a great deal about his perspective about climate change. Uh, Tom is an extremely active citizen, and he and his wife, Kat Taylor, have joined with Warren Buffett, Bill and Melinda Gates and other wealthy individuals in giving the pledge of promise to donate the majority of their wealth to charitable and non, uh, uh, nonprofit activities during their lifetimes. They have created the Oakland-based One Pacific Coast Bank and Foundation, which provides loans and banking services to underserved small businesses, communities, and individuals along the West Coast. They also founded two renewable energy research institutes at Stanford, the Tomcat Center for Sustainable Energy and the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. They also own the Tomcat Ranch, dedicated to the health and preservation of the land and community. I'm, I'm going to bet you're a fan of Duarte's and their great pies and, <laughs> and, and Pescadero. Everyone should try it. Uh, at their ranch, they use uh, solar-powered electric fences and rotational grazing practices to avoid overgrazing. So I would now like to introduce Dan. Both Dan and Tom will speak for approximately 20 minutes, and then we will have, I think, a very vibrant Q&A. So I think that uh, I, lo I look for a very, very lively discussion. 
So, Dan, if you could please come up. And again, I'll rephrase the question of just how much time do we have? How acute are the problems? So I think it's a real testament to Berkeley and to Stanford that people are here today instead of getting the barbecue pregame. So thank you all for being here. And Dick, thank you for doing it. And Henry, thanks for, uh, for organizing and, and getting us going on, on this event. Um, to get to Dick's question right off, um, the generic answer is we have 37 years. 37.0 years to get the significant figures incorrectly in there. And that really means that the climate assessment is that by 2050, we have to have completely changed our ways. And there's a whole number of reasons why that's going to be a very challenging story. So I'll use my 20-minute sort of opening salvo just to highlight some of the issues and opportunities and to really focus a little bit on why I think it's so exceptional to be doing this in the Bay Area, at Berkeley, and the ability to work on these kinds of projects. And I see one of my students from my undergraduate and graduate class here in the room today. And I kind of note that when I first came to Berkeley 15 years ago, this room would have been seen as too big for our energy and society class. And today, it is in the largest auditorium in the new development in the northwest corner of campus. Um, and so it really does uh, speak to the testament of what's changed overall in process. So when I look at the balance between doing science developing policy and engaging on the output side of the story, I really couldn't be more pleased and a little bit more worried that we've done a number of remarkable things in California and elsewhere, and the uptake of those around the world has been much too slow. We're not doing everything right here, as, uh, as, as Dick and Henry alluded to, but we have moved very slowly. So one place where we've had an interesting, I would say, sea change in thinking is that since 2010, I've been Secretary Clinton and then now Secretary Kerry's energy envoy to the Americas to try to make relationships between universities, industry, in Latin America, the Caribbean, and the U.S. And it's one of the places that I kind of highlight back to lessons we've learned from the Cold War, where one of the places where dialogue could really flourish, even if there was an action or large-scale action, was in the science, in that time at nonproliferation and now in terms of these engagements. And so here's a picture in the field in the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua, um, right on the edge of the Pearl Lagoon, a swampy area that's a clean energy leader, um, and then in Managua giving a talk around some of the initiatives that we have in place. And it highlights to me the need to act on the courage of one's, I don't want to say convictions, because the science is much stronger than just convictions, but to act on what we see going on. And so when I look at the types of engagements, we've been able to work through a number of policies in California that have really spread. A few of them have been blocked by uh, notable secretaries of treasury, such as uh, PACE financing, property-assessed clean energy, but in developing federal support for, uh, for clean energy standards, working on California's greenhouse gas law, developing a clean energy standard for fuels called the low-carbon fuel standard. All of these things have come out of this dialogue between entrepreneurs, California largely business people, policymakers in the state and around. It's been a pretty interesting set of projects. And as someone who definitely has no business sense, my wife keeps telling me, we've been able to spin off uh, a number of companies and international initiatives that have taken some of these things on. So it really is a place where doing good and finding opportunities to spread those messages are in the water. 
I'll spend a couple minutes on one slide because I think it's maybe the most important thing I'll say today, and that is that in thinking about how to act with this rough 37 years, and I say that because the climate story is that if we don't change our energy equation by 2050, then we condemn tropical coral reefs, we condemn ourselves to much greater um, frequency of fires, we condemn ourselves to a whole range of climate catastrophes that will cost us not billions and not trillions, but really redefining the environmental and economic landscape in which we live. So the world that I grew up in as a physicist is to think about what is the science of climate change. And these are the iconic or generic graphs showing climate change going back with data to the 1850s, the top one is a version of the hockey stick, as it's called, looking at the change in, in surface temperature. The middle one is sea level rise. And then the last record, which isn't anywhere near as detailed yet, is the amount of, of northern hemisphere snow. And of course, California's water, our agriculture is tied up in managing that well. And so while the data set isn't as long there, it's critical to understanding the story. My upbringing as a physicist was, this is where the action is, think through these lessons, write papers on them, and then uh, just sort of make the messages clear. But that's nowhere near good enough. And I'm going to highlight this because, as Dick mentioned, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for which I'm very proud to be a member, despite its several missteps along the way, um, did share the Nobel Prize with Al Gore in 2007. Since there was a couple thousand of us and one Al Gore, I guess we're micro-gores by one metric. <laughs> but I noticed on campus that we didn't even get a shared bike rack, let alone a parking space <laughs> for winning the Nobel Prize. But maybe we'll address that later on. But this science story has to be translated into action. And the IPCC process is to take the science generated by several hundred and now several thousand leaders and then get that through review by the UN member nations, not a simple task. And so when this process began with the first assessment report, that green vertical line in 1990, the statement was it'll take us a decade to figure this out, despite the fact that from my physicist background, that looks like we're pretty clearly on the climb. Second assessment report, five years later, the balance of human evidence suggests discernible human influence, and one of those words took eight hours to negotiate, discernible. The third assessment report, notice a year of slippage in the debate as the process heated up. Um, 2001, most of the warming in the last 50 years likely, with a probability, warms my heart, uh, due to human activities. And then the fourth assessment report, notice a little more slippage, 2007. Most of the warming very likely, 90% probability due to human activity. And then the IPCC took what I think is the bravest step, the one that's been most challenging, and that is to begin to discuss the implications of that process. Warming will most strongly and quickly impact the global poor. It doesn't say just developing nations. It says the poor in the north and south. My wife is a radiologist at Children's Hospital, and she routinely sees people coming in for immunizations for diseases not normally seen in this area on the uptick. Florida has dengue fever and malaria returning to South Florida. I don't think that's a political statement. I think that's a statement about the climate. And so we're seeing these changes uh, in the works and in the water. In 2011, we produced one of the interim reports that goes into this process. 
That was with the ungainly name, the Special Report on Renewable Energy and Efficiency, a very nerdy title. And it said that we can do this 80% transition to clean energy if. And that if-then statement is a computer programmer's nightmare. It's if this, if that. It goes on for pages and pages. But it indicates what scientifically we've known, and that is these transitions are possible. The latest report released on Friday, which you can see, uh, it's, it's the cover article on the Daily Cal, says that warming is human-caused, 90%, 95% confidence, and the rest of the more normative statements, the technical, the policy statements, will appear in a series of reports that will appear between now and the spring. And I highlight the story for several reasons. One is that it shows where we are in the science, but it shows one thing that the science community, myself included, has done an absolutely abysmal job doing, and that is translating that into actionable policy statements that have had real international legs. So just to highlight where we are on this process, California, despite have having a financially crippling energy crisis in 2001, by 2006 and 7 was passing landmark legislation that said by 2020 we have to get off that gray business as usual path and get onto the green path. And in fact, we're on the green path California is on pace to get back down to its 1990 emissions. That's the internationally accepted baseline year by 2020. Just for a comparison, the European standards are generally 20 to 40% below that zero line baseline by 2020. But given where we started, this is pretty good. But this is really a down payment on making the cuts back down to 80% below that baseline by 2050. We do not technically know how to get all the way there, despite lots of cute models and, and, and assessments. We've got, we're going to have to discover this in practice and through implementation. And the reason why I would say this is so possible, why it's not some impossible challenge that looks uh, beyond costly and beyond technically impossible, is when I look at the Moscone Center, this is a picture during the retrofit, when the Moscone Center went from the old incandescent bulbs to the new, more efficient bulbs, and they've actually even replaced those T5 light bulbs to the state. Notice that, A, the quality of light is better, and that's something we often leave out of the clean energy and energy efficiency equation. It's not just replacing a brown, dirty bit of energy, a brown electron with a green one. It's that, can we find a way to make the business proposition more exciting? Can the green electron be a better service? When you go from a Walkman to an MP3 player, you didn't just get a smaller device to have more songs. You got all kinds of other services, backing up your computer, et cetera, et cetera. Too much in the clean tech world, we have failed on this story. We have, we have given good arguments why we should go solar instead of going gas or coal, but we haven't found ways to make that new business opportunity better, and that's really the challenge. The Moscone Center is a great example because not only did they do this upgrade, but they saved enough money so that, and largely they saved the money by being able to down, uh, downsize their air conditioning because old light bulbs are basically little heaters. Think of your easy-bake oven with the light bulb in it to bake food. Um, but these more efficient light bulbs give up much less heat, so you could downsize the heating system and actually save money, not just buy green, but have an improvement. And what did the city do with that savings? They didn't pocket it or do other things. They used it to install solar on the roof, 
And they did that early on, and that was the largest solar array in the United States when the Moscone Center in the city of San Francisco did it. That's a remarkable positive feedback. And Dick mentioned the negative feedbacks that climate has, but here's one where innovation in one area led to innovations in another area. And it's that kind of process, using the science that comes out of all our universities, the national labs, companies, to do something that really was important climate-wise, making the building more efficient, and then being innovative and plowing back some of that innovation capital back into making the building a landmark for clean energy. Now that's a trivial-sized solar array in terms of commercial ones. We have companies like BrightSource and Osra and many others doing not arrays that are six-tenths of a megawatt, but 60, 600 megawatts in size. So we found a whole new scale of operation. I will not go through the details of this slide here. It'll be on the exam after this discussion. (laughs) But what I highlight here is that California went from this energy crisis in 2001 to having what I describe as a dense network of mutually reinforcing clean energy policies. We have a standard for clean electricity called our Renewable Portfolio Standard. We've adopted a European strategy called a feed-in tariff, and we have a small additional feed-in tariff that many people like myself want to expand. That that strategy alone gives us targets for clean energy. We have a carbon market that we'll talk about greatly. California's market right now is a cap-and-trade market. Cap-and-trade and and tax will be talked about later on. There are benefits and drawbacks to both, um, and we'll talk about and I'll kind of reveal where my preferences are in this uh, as we go. But California also has a mandate for solar rooftops. It's got a mandate for electric vehicles. It has aspects of the regulation within the different sectors, transportation, forestry, industry, home building, that all work together. And so by 2020, all of California's new homes have to create as much energy as they produce. They have to be net zero energy, even though the term isn't exactly right. Um, That we know how to do today. But in 2030, all of California's office buildings need to be net zero energy. And we don't know how to do that. And so this is a real push where science led us somewhere. And our policymakers, in particular Governor Schwarzenegger and the PUC, pushed us to a target beyond where we were thinking. And it's a real interesting back and forth of innovation public statements and needing to make good on them, and it's something that's really important in the process of finding ways to make this process happen. Picture of solar neighborhoods that 15 years ago were literally only a dream. Now we're seeing opportunities to build out whole areas with electric vehicles in the garages, with solar on rooftops, with ways to biologically produce hydrogen for local fuel cells, all kinds of things tied together. This is that process where California's special sauce, special approach, has really made a big impact. I won't talk about the details of the analysis of how we get there. Our lab is very engaged in building models that the Western states and China and elsewhere use to examine the energy mix. But more or less what we find is that when you think about scaling up the amount of renewables, scaling up the amount of natural gas, and finding ways so that even if we scale up the amount of gas now to replace coal, that we're doing so in a way that it's going to be as painless as possible to ramp that wedge of added gas down. Because we can't just ramp up gas. We have to get almost all of that out of the system by 2052. That means we have, we have to have a much greatly accelerated window to depreciate those gas assets. They would need to pay off for investors, but we cannot pivot from coal to gas and be stuck there. 
That's what the climate story, that's what Dick's numbers say. We're seeing tremendous innovation, for example, in the price of solar. This is a graph showing that right now solar is just above the average price of electricity in a lot of the United States. It's come down several fold from what it was only a couple decades ago. And in fact, President Obama's sunshot program to have solar a dollar a watt by 2020 is something we think we can make good on technically and scientifically. And that would make solar a unsubsidized direct competitor with fossil fuels in only seven years. And we're going to need innovations like that to go forward. Berkeley and other places have been center points of the debate over things like the Keystone Pipeline to bring quite dirty fossil fuels from Alberta into large-scale use in the United States and for export from the United States. And we're going to need to look at what are the pieces of this equation. Importantly, in President Obama's summer speech on climate, he said something which warms the cockles of my academic heart, and he said, we're going to assess this project in terms of its greenhouse gas impacts, and that will be the determinant whether we do it or not. And as a scientist, I know that the answer is, if that truly is our metric, we don't do it. If that's not what we do in the end, that'll change the equation. The stuff that will flow through that pipe, tar sands or oil sands, depending if you're pre or post the Canadian good PR campaign, around changing the name from tar to oil sands is one of the examples. Does it determine the whole climate equation? No, but it's one of those lines in the sand that we're going to have to think about. The other part of the story is we have to engage internationally. No matter what happens in Europe and California and elsewhere, California is 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. If we don't build partnerships, we're not going to change the equation. This is a ramp up of projected energy use around the world, noting India on there, but I'll add China itself. If we don't engage with China in a positive way, we don't win. Today, China has a carbon tax. U.S. does not. Now, China's number is too low. California's number is arguably a little bit too low, but we're ramping up. But those kinds of engagements are critical. And those of us who have been to China recently know that the absolutely abhorrent air quality conditions due to power plants and vehicles is a place where technology and policy can really drive a very interesting difference. When we look at China's goals for clean energy, they are exceptional. This is the ramp up of hydro, controversial. Uh, wind, not, not as controversial, but a little bit. Nuclear, highly controversial. Solar, not so controversial. And as benchmarks, Total energy demand today in Western North America is the blue line. Total energy demand in California is the yellow line. That shows that as much as we want to criticize China for building a new coal-fired power plant every two weeks, their goals for clean are way, way up there compared to many other places. China, in many ways, is going all directions at once. Lots of coal construction, and yet they are the global leader in solar manufacturing electric vehicle battery manufacturing, and wind turbine manufacturing. So without a positive engagement there, we don't win this equation, but we've got to demonstrate we can do these things at home. I'll spend only a couple minutes on it, but the other part of the story is that energy access is as big or a bigger crisis as climate. And some people have fallen into what I think is the trap of saying we can either have clean energy for all or access and as much as we can clean our energy mix in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere, energy access for the poor has got to come from whatever source. 
I would say that argument is totally wrong. We see again and again that to beat down on these large pie charts on the, on the right in each case shows the number of people, both urban and rural, who are projected to be without access to electricity by 2030. That's an unacceptable baseline because it means that we don't get those services. Secretary Ban Ki-moon has said by 2030, the, the UN mandate is everyone has access to electricity, everyone on the planet. We're going to make modern energy access available to everyone, but we're going to do that at the same time that we double the deployment of energy efficiency and we double the global share of renewables. I applaud the first one. The second and third that sound hard, we have to go way beyond that. We will not get there if by 2030 we're only getting these doubling of the rates. A journal that I hope you all read regularly, the North Borneo Post, <laughs> highlighted just one of these example engagements. We were asked by an environmental group in the North Borneo, the Malaysian state of Sabah, to look at alternatives to coal after the government had already purchased a coal plant from China. So this sounds like kind of a hopeless uh, boondoggle. Why would one waste academic time on it? Well, we held a number of community forums. We assessed the options. The newspaper reported biomass, but we also talked about solar and wind, and they're part of the equation. And in fact, what happened is that the state ordered the power company after our report came out and after those community hearings to cancel the already signed agreement for that coal-fired power plant. That's a great opportunity because it highlighted these other opportunities, and it was biomass, solar, gas, and other things. We did this several years ago. A new minister came in last week and said, well, I think we should revisit that coal plant story. So what I say for this is this is at a full employment for faculty because you fight it once, now we can recycle that fight and have it again, but I hope we're going to win this second time around. There are places like this. This is the capital of South Sudan, Juba, Newest country on the planet, lowest electricity rate of any country. And what you see on the outskirts of Juba here is what I would call unplanned international development. Here you can see the traditional communities, the thatched roof huts. And here you can see an aid project uh, built by a company I won't mention, the UK. Um, and they've built a set of nice new homes, but there's no infrastructure. There's no wiring. There's no water. There's no anything. They built nice, high-quality homes but because of budget issues and getting things done, they didn't tie the story together. One of the places where Berkeley and Stanford and MIT and Carnegie Mellon and a few other key leaders in thinking through how to do the science and do the action have been instrumental is looking at solutions that don't just drop anthills in the savanna, if you don't mind a quote from, um, from Chinua Achebe, and that is not just nice homes, but without anything else. This is a picture of a place where we've been engaged with a number of people based by, uh, uh, supported by philanthropists in San Francisco to build out micro-hydro as a way to build sustainable hydro to bring energy services to the community. Um, and you'll notice down on the bottom left is a picture of the store in that town. It's got, that's the solar panel. That's the energy system for the town. There's a boy selling charcoal on the, on the airstrip. And there I am with my guard slash guide looking at this site. And I'm going to end there because the, the real story I've hoped to highlight is that we are not done with the story in California by any science, technical, policy, or political means. As we dig down further into those wedges of decarbonization, we're going to see technical hurdles. We're going to see the need to push hard. We've already seen strong pushback from certain industry sectors. 
when Prop 23 came up to undo Proposition 32, um, Assembly Bill 32, we've seen the need to fight back and to explain what are the green jobs benefits, what are the technological benefits, what are the global leadership benefits, are the kinds of things that we'll talk about today, but that our engagement and our example, whether it's in China, India, or around the world, is critical because if we don't make these stories spread, we don't win even if we feel like we win at home. So thank you all for being here, and I look forward to the next part of the talk. Thank you very much for that excellent presentation and also for the reminder to renew my subscription to the North Borneo Post, which I will, will do very soon. Uh, I'd now like to bring up Tom Steyer, and, who I'm meeting for the first time, but I've read a great deal about him. And I've been very impressed because I think he has that businessman's laser focus on key priorities. Where, where are the biggest opportunities to make a difference? And I think, as many of you are aware, he has been very outspoken on the issue of the Keystone Pipeline, which I know is of concern to many people in the room. And I'm going to kind of take the liberty, uh, perhaps he wants to answer this in the Q&A, or I'll throw it out now. I think many people are interested in how did Tom come to focus on Keystone as opposed to other possible answers like the carbon tax. I mean, it's, I'm sure we'd like to address many things. But as a business executive, how did it come that that became at the top of your agenda? So good morning. Um, thank you very much for having me here. Um, as you probably know, I don't have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I also don't have a PhD, a Cal degree, and I also don't have any slides. So... Um, I think we can establish right up front that I am an idiot, and you probably shouldn't listen to what I have to say from here on out. But uh, since I'm here, I will give you the benefit of the last few years of what I've done about energy. Um, just so you know, I founded and ran an investment firm. About, I founded it about 30 years and ran it to the end of last year. And I was, it was in San Francisco, but we had offices around the world. I was, I'm healthy. I was very happily happy, and I was dramatically overpaid. And the question I would ask you this morning is, we're facing a difficult task. I have no official job whatsoever, and the cash flow is going in the exact wrong way. So you have to ask yourself, what went wrong? How could I possibly have made this decision? Well, I actually resigned my job at the end of last year because... I felt as if there was a need to do something in the coalition that's fighting on energy and climate. And there wasn't anybody who really wanted the job. I view it as kind of like being a garbage man, that everybody knows someone needs to do the job, but not a lot of people are lining up to get the job. Um, and I happen to think that Berkeley is a perfect place to be talking about this this morning. First of all, I am shocked and thrilled that we have standing room only on a football Saturday <laughs> at 10 o'clock in the morning. That's, that's actually not a joke. I, I really am, because what I'm going to talk about is why that is actually essential that people feel this in their bones. Um, as you know, the motto of Berkeley 
which is perfect for, the topic, for today's topic, is let there be light. Berkeley has three U.S. energy labs that are absolutely fantastic. And I am a huge believer in setting out what we're doing. I'm a huge believer in knowing what your mission is. I don't understand how to accomplish something until you've sat down and decided what it is you're trying to accomplish. And I think a lot of times people assume that they agree amongst themselves what it is they're trying to do. But my experience is when you set out to do something, it's worth having a hard discussion up front to define what your task is. So let me give you the task that we came up with after sitting there and arguing with each other for three or four months at the beginning of this year after I left my job. Our mission is to act politically to prevent climate disaster and preserve American prosperity. Now, there's a good question about why I would leave my job to do that. And I'm going to get to how, what that really means to act politically to prevent climate disaster and preserve American prosperity. But let me say this right up front. The reason I am doing this, the reason that I think the people in this room should take this as seriously as I do, is, you know, I have four kids. And I'm sure everyone in this room has, feels they have responsibilities to younger people in the world than, than themselves. And I think this is our generational challenge. I think that it's traditional, it's typical for American society to face a huge challenge in a generation. I think that's how generations get measured. If you go back through times, that's what's happened. That's what people are proud of when they realize what the issue is and they actually step up to it. Churchill does have a famous quote about doing everything else first, but traditionally Americans have been willing to accept difficult truths and act on them. And that is exactly where I think we are today. Um, let me just take you through how I came here. We had fund, my wife and I had funded research at several universities on energy and climate. And the, really, the, the reason we did it is we can read. You know, we could read. I, 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 we went through all the science. Dick and Dan were talking about the science in the IPCC report. But if you can read, and it, it was pretty obvious a fair bit ago that this was actually something that was going on, and for some reason our system was unable to respond to it. And if you think about the responses, I'm going to talk about what I think the key response is, but if you think about what our societal response is going to be on this, it's going to be based on policy, technology, and finance. And we thought, okay, we'll push on technology. We'll try and enable scientists to do the kind of work that Dan was talking about, to come up with new ideas, how to generate and use energy you know, more effectively, more cleanly. In 2010, these two companies, Dan referred to it, tried to push a proposition onto us to undo California's energy laws. Just so you know, California has the most progressive energy laws in the world. We really do. The people who, who passed that suite of laws are heroes in my mind. They did it at a very tough time. It was not at all a, a gimme, and they were passed, and then a couple of out-of-state companies came in and said, let's undo it. And at that point, the history politically of propositions on the ballot was if you fight big energy companies, you spend tens of millions of your own money, and you lose and are embarrassed. So once again, it was a garbage man's job, which, it turns out, is perfect for me. <laughs> but I, what was true is I'm a Democrat, but we did something different in 2010. And I don't know how, I know this is UC Berkeley. So I know that stands for the University of California. I am that smart. 
But I don't know how many of you guys live in California. Four Californians, Prop 23, we did something different. You know, we, we did not do the traditional environmental fight. I co-chaired it with George Schultz, who is a famous Republican, of course, having been in administ Republican administrations back to Eisenhower. But let me talk about why it was different politically, too. We did different messages. We didn't do environmental messages. We asked ourselves, not what do we want to tell people, but what can people hear that they care about? And that is a critical difference in terms of political messaging. So in fact, we didn't talk about climate. We didn't talk about global warming. We talked about clean energy jobs, health, and the fact that some companies were trying to take advantage of California citizens. And those are three messages people could respond to. And we used different messengers. The American Lung Association was our messenger on health. There's a woman who unfortunately has died named Jane Warner who is fantastic on it. But we weren't using traditional environmental speakers. We were using somebody, when, when the head of the American Lung Association said she's concerned about your ability to breathe, everybody knows that's true because that's who the American Lung Association is. So we used a different message, different messengers. And the last thing that was really different, we had a completely different coalition. Because the fact of the matter is, for those of you like me who, are, who obsessively read polls, and I don't know how many people are that boring in this room, <laughs> but there is at least one person, namely me, who is that boring. It isn't, environmentalists in the state of California are not who you think they are. The group that votes by far the strongest on the environment, and it's been true in every poll and, in, and after every election, is Latinos. Number two, Asian Americans, Number three, African-Americans. So if you're going to have a coalition on an environmental proposition in the state of California, if you really think that you're going to do it from a narrow band of environmentalists, that is actually not how you're going to win. So we, had, we specifically organized clean businesses. We specifically enlisted organized labor on our side and got both of those so that we could absolutely say this is not jobs versus the environment. But in addition, we had a very broad coalition of people, and we talked a lot about environmental justice. And that is something that is going to have to happen going forward. And in 2010, that is the, one of the most important things we did. So obviously, we won that. For the Californians, we got 70% of the vote. We got more votes. We got more votes than anyone running for office or any proposition in the United States that year. Now, California happens to be the biggest state, so getting the highest number for a prop here pretty much gets you the country, but nonetheless. And let me say, we ran another prop. George and I co-chaired another prop in 2012, which was also environmental, which had to do with renovating schools for energy and then using the saved money to you know, spend on actual teaching, teachers, school materials which we got 60%. And let me talk to you for a second about what I learned there because it's actually relevant for what we're going to do going forward and it's relevant for what we need to do, everybody in this room, as a way to think about what your options and responsibilities are. So basically, we ran a different kind of campaign again in 2012 because the political landscape, and this is, I'm going to talk tactics here for a second. It's interesting to me. I'm interested in polls. I'm interested in tactics, so if I'm boring you, I'll apologize. But it, it, the world has changed politically, and you could look at the Obama-Romney campaign to see what works politically, and it is not what worked 10 years ago. What works politically is field. 
human beings talking to human beings. It's get out the vote, field, online to field, and coalition. What doesn't work in politics in 2012 and 2013? TV ads. The traditional way that people spend money in politics is they buy TV ads in major media markets. And they saturate it, and that's how they make huge changes in people's opinions. Well, we ran... Our proposition in 2012 was Prop 39. It was a very crowded ballot. By definition, 30, you know, 39. <laughs> there were a lot of props for the California people who still live in California. There were some very high-level, you know, high-profile props. So we were dealing with a crowded ballot in a presidential election year. So we could do a poll every single day and see what TV advertising did to change awareness or change votes. Virtually nothing. 58% of Californians click through your ads automatically on their TV. So you're starting with 42% of the people. And, you know, I, I imagine of those 42, I want to, don't want to say what percent are getting a beer during your ad. But the, <laughs> the traditional idea that if you put something on TV, you can really move the numbers is absolutely not true. And if you look at what happened in the presidential election and you look at Ohio, which was the key state all along in that presidential election... Obama had 250 field operations there. Romney had 40. I don't think the Republicans understood what this election was about. In 2012, we knocked on 5 million doors in the state of California on Prop 39. We, that was something where we absolutely, that was an organizational task based on coalition of people who sp voluntarily spent the last few weekends going door to door where you, knew, you only voted, knocked on the doors where you knew who was living there and that they were likely to be in your camp to knock on them and tell them exactly what to do on the props. So the world has changed politically. Now, as I said, I'm not exactly sure what my new job is, but I do know a few things. It's not about science. The science, let's take Dick's word is good, is settled. There are questions but we're not debating the science today. The other thing we're not debating is the policy. Because the fact of the matter is, this is not the first time in American history that we've had to deal with pollution. We have done this before. We had the acid rain crisis. We had the hole in the ozone crisis. The fact of the matter is, the policies, we, we're going to talk about them, and I don't want to try and you know, say that they're not important because they're absolutely important. I don't want to conflate policy and politics. The Tea Party, so let's talk policy just quickly. I'm going to get to Dick's question about why the hell am I spending time on the Keystone Pipeline when we all know that the fact of the matter is we need some kind of tax on carbon. I will get there. But let me say this. The job of government in this case is to set the framework for the rest of it, for, for the business community to make it work. Now, let me give you an example of how this happened in a different industry, but the same way. In 1983, and so this is sponsored by the class of 68, so hopefully you are all around in uh, 1983, we had a communications monopoly called Ma Bell. We also had rotary phones. There had not been much innovation in the last 80 years before 1983. Not that they didn't have great labs. They had great labs. They just didn't innovate. We're all using rotary phones. They broke up AT&T. 
They did the Communications Act of 1996. All of a sudden, in 2013, the talk is of the Twitter IPO. We went from the rotary phone to the Twitter IPO in 30 years. There are probably 10,000 innovations that took us on that path. The fact is, they changed the framework, they gave the right incentives to business, and mayhem ensued in the most positive way. And that is exactly what has to happen here. We have to set up the framework correctly, the policy right, and let American business figure out the cheapest and most effective way that will knock all our socks off. And we'll look back and go like, of course there's a Twitter IPO. That's so obvious, Tom. That isn't even the newest thing. You know, get with the program. I know that. And that will, is what will happen in energy. So why are we having this problem? It's politics. That's why our mission is to act politically. What we have is political failure here. And let me say this. This is... What is it? The 5th of October. Washington, D.C. is basically, you know, out of business. When we're talking about political dysfunction, we're seeing it right before our eyes in Washington. So think about where we were at the beginning of 2013. We all knew we were going to get some form of gun control bill. That was a given. We knew for sure we were going to get some form of immigration reform. That was what the election was about. Of course we're getting immigration reform. And then the question is, are we going to get a grand bargain to deal with entitlements going forward in return for the short term? That was something that was a high probability. None of them. All of them are off the table. And the question is, how do we think about that and how do we behave in it? So let me once again speak to the Californians in the room. We have lived this we have had, I always tease people outside California because when I go there, I don't want them to think that I'm bragging about our state. I love our state, and I don't want to go and be one of those people who shows up in Missouri and tells them how great California is. So I always say, look, California likes to lead. We had a dysfunctional legislature before anybody else. <laughs> we, had, we had an inability to pass a budget before anyone else. We base democracy failed, representational democracy failed in Sacramento before it failed everywhere else. And we had the same demographic trends here. So the fact is, when I look at Washington, D.C., I remember California, and it's playing out exactly the same. A minority party has a veto and has decided to exercise it on legislation and budget matters. That happened in the state of California. We spent 10 years reading, we're bankrupt, we can't do anything, budget crisis in Sacramento, people being furloughed, paying people with script. We've lived this before. We know how this turns out. It's exactly the same. But the fact of the matter is, in California, representational democracy didn't work for a while. And so we did something else. We did this huge experiment, much lampooned, of direct democracy called Propositions that basically the 37 million Californians believe in democracy. Well, the 317 million Americans also believe in democracy. So the question is not, do we have dysfunction in Washington, D.C.? We do. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And we don't have propositions in the United States of America. Because I promise you, if, the, if we did, people would be using them just the way they used them in California. And if you remember in California, everything went to props. 
They changed the tax rates, three strikes, death penalty, marriage equality, everything went to the props. So what are we going to do today? Well, it turns out there are other forms of government that don't reside in Washington, D.C. And that includes the state governments and the leading state government in the country, particularly on energy and climate, is in California. So what we are going to do is we are going to push in the states. We're going to push in the states because there's real leadership in the states. Not only in California, if you go up and down the West Coast, if you look in New England, there is a, a desire on the part of governors, and it is not at all this, this kind of partisan dysfunction that we see in D.C., for people to actually act on this and to actually lead on this. They think it's a great opportunity for them to be leaders, to make their states lead and get clean energy jobs and push hard and actually progress. And the question is, not only can that happen in states, but can the states link up? Can we get regional things the way they have in New England, where they have a regional combine having to do with electricity utility generation? Can we do that in the rest of the United States? Because as Dan said, look, this is a global problem. This is a global problem that requires a global solution. So what do we even care if the state of Washington decides to have policies like California and we have a regional energy policy? Why does that matter in a world where China is by far the biggest greenhouse gas emitter? And the answer is, if it's a global solution we need, the United States is still the essential country. It's not like we're going to be the only leader here, but this is not happening without American political leadership, technology leadership, and, and economic leadership. We're not going to be alone. It's going to be a coalition. But that is absolutely what's to ha- what has to happen. And before it happens, we have to win politically in the United States overtly. If you think this is, and I really believe this is our generational challenge, we're not going to win a generational challenge secretly. You know, I always say, we're not going to win World War II secretly. We have to declare World War II for all hands to be on deck. Now, in this, believe it or not, the crazy people of the Bay Area are actually leading, which is a fantastic thing as someone who lives here. You know, we really, I think the people in this region and in this state recognize what this is and are willing to work on it. So how are we actually going to accomplish this change? Well, there's a lot of talk about what we can do from a, and I'm I'm going to finish with Dick's question, but let me just say this. There's a lot of talk about what we can do voluntarily, you know, that we can put, and I happen to have PV on the roof. We have done, you know, I happen to have been driving a hybrid for 12 years, we can all do those things, and probably the people in this room actually do do those things. But honestly, I think that's incredibly important. If you read Martin Luther King's speech, uh, letter from Montgomery Jail, one of the things that's required for a huge change and to lead is self-purification. So I don't want to say anything against that. I think it's critical. And if you think about World War II as an all-hands-on-deck change for American society... There were victory gardens. People who had never grown vegetables grew vegetables. And was that important? It was important because it was a statement of who they were. But did we win World War II because of victory gardens? No, actually. We won World War II because Detroit stopped making cars and started making tanks and battleships and planes. 
So for us to change, we need a complete societal change, which is going to require the framework which we put in so that American business starts to do what they did in World War II, which is completely change itself. So that it's absolutely assumed that these are the rules and everybody just throws away the old rules and moves forward. So let me end with Keystone versus a carbon tax. Given all that, that what we really need to do is fight politically and end up with a society-wide change in policy which is going to be difficult to affect politically, which is why we're working politically, why the hell would I be talking about the Keystone Pipeline? Well, there are, t- there are two good reasons. One is, you don't always get to choose the fight you're in. You know, sometimes you're just in a fight. The Keystone Pipeline really is a terrible idea. It opens up these tar sands. It lets the development move up. You know, it'll be three times faster It really is terrible oil. It's a gigantic deposit that they're trying to open. It is not good for the United States of America in any way, and from a a climate and energy standpoint, it's absolutely rotten. But the biggest thing about Keystone is we have to make a change. We have to make a decision to do something different. We're not doing this secretly. It's not like we're going to do a few good things, and okay, we'll do a few bad things. We have to make a deliberate decision to do the right thing. And if we do that, that will be, oh, we'll end up with a carbon tax or we'll end up with some control of carbon. That's a given. But the question is, at what point do we decide we've had our Pearl Harbor moment? And it... And until we do, we are not going to take this with the seriousness it merits. It will not be recognized as our generational challenge. And the fact is, when you think about politics, if 100% of the people in the United States of America want to save the polar bears, but nobody will change their vote, it's not their issue. Of course I'm for the polar bears. Who's not for the polar bears? But if nobody changes their vote, the polar bears don't exist politically. If you won't change your vote, then that issue does not exist. And that's how American politics works. I'll I'll end with one last story about this. A friend of mine is really big on gun control. And he was uh, going around the country and talking to senators, trying to convince them that they needed to sign on to background checks. And he was talking to a senator and explaining it to her, and she started to cry because he was laying a pretty heavy thing on her, which was that if we don't get some kind of gun control, you can see that there are going to be more six-year-olds who are going to get gunned down. And that's just, this, that's just the odds, that there are going to be people who are going to have access to guns who otherwise wouldn't, and they're going to shoot innocent people, and some of them are going to be little kids. And so the senator started to cry and said, look, I want to vote for it, but I can't vote for it, because I won't get reelected if I vote for this. So I'm not, I'm, she's crying in her office. And the guy said, I felt really bad for her. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I didn't feel bad for her. Because she basically said, my job is more important to me than the lives of innocent six-year-olds. That, let's not fight that. That is our system. That is okay. We need to go out and change the votes that tell that senator that's the wrong decision. And that's what we need to do in energy and climate. It's not enough. The reason we don't talk about polar bears, nobody changes their vote on polar bears. 
You have to be able to talk to people about what they care about at their kitchen table, talking to their family about what they care about most. And until that happens, we won't get the society-wide move we need, we won't get the broad policies we need, and we will never unleash the innovation power, the research, the development, the kind of research-based industry that we deserve in this and that we absolutely need in it. And so that's why we have the motto we do. Thank you. Thank you both to Dan and Tom for simply extraordinary presentations. And I think I also want to point out that uh, we were so anxious to get Tom on this panel. We said that for the first time in Berkeley history, someone could wear a red tie to home <laughs> to homecoming on campus. And that, that's Jack, a bargain. I thought it was the huge payment. <laughs> uh, happily, we have a full 30 minutes for questions, and I, I know they are going to come. So start right here. And please direct it to either Dan or Tom, or I'm sure many of the questions you might like to hear their different perspectives on the same question. This is uh, for Dan. Um, yes, I know we've done a great thing passing AB 32. I work in transportation. SB 375 is supposed to be the way to implement that in transportation planning. But when you look at it, SB 375 is really a lot of wishful thinking. Um, there's no teeth in it. Uh, there's a big out for communities. They say they have to include climate uh, uh, greenhouse gas in their plans, but if it's economically infeasible, they can, they can uh, get out of it. And we're not really getting at the root of the problem, which is this fiscal zoning problem we have caused by Prop 13, where communities are overzoning for, uh, for commercial, retail, residential gets pushed out, and it's impossible to plan for that. We're, we're going to end up with the uh, Central Valley as the second metropolitan area in the state. And uh, their average vehicle miles of travel is much greater than what we have here. So somehow we need to change the equation. Right now, all we have in transport, everybody wants more capacity. Everybody wants to reduce congestion. But nobody's really thinking about how we re-engineer our land use to uh, reduce travel. So Prop 3, uh, SB 375 is a really interesting and it is certainly a flawed piece of legislation, but it's flawed in ways that are both positive and is part of what I expect to be the innovation. The most interesting feature of 375 for me is that this is the first time we have a land use planning feature, and you, you noted the issues about residential and commercial properties, but it's a land use law where all of the teeth are actually tied to our climate law. It's, it's a really unique piece of, I would say, California innovation, exactly in the line that's, that, that Tom said. And I actually am more positive about it than you are for a couple reasons. Does it solve all the issues? Absolutely not. Does it have outs, um, escape valves, if you will? It certainly does. AB 32 has escape valves, one of which was the grand compromise around how we were going to set up our carbon market and if the price of carbon went too high, then credits would be released into the market, and that would keep us, A, with a reasonable price early on, but it would also keep everyone in the game. 
And the reason why that's so important is because we've seen in New England and we've seen in Europe high-profile, much, much, much heralded climate markets, carbon markets, go to pot because their prices fell so low because they gave away credits and they gave away loopholes in ways that didn't actually allow the regulators to keep everyone in the story. And so the feature of a 375 that I find most heartening is that it requires everyone to do the math. Communities that want to do new development projects, whether they're residential or commercial, have to do the analysis, and those goals are tied back to the climate goals. So the piece of the story that I think is most important here is that California right now has the most aggressive solar and, in particular in this case, the most aggressive electric vehicle standards in the country, and that to meet local development standards, you have to comply with those. Does that mean we have the whole story figured out? Absolutely not. But what it does do is it's given a lot of strength to the argument that California, in this transition that Tom and I are talking about, is going to have to push aggressively hard on homes and businesses that are net zero energy and are clean energy generators, and that we are all driving around the driving that we do have to do in vehicles that are dramatically better than what we have now in terms of emissions. Does that solve big traffic jams? No. You can have as bad a traffic jam in electric vehicles as regular cars. But knowing that we have to use some amount of, tra of transportation, this is a way to link them in important ways. We have to deal with some of the items you highlighted, but the fact that 375 links into the climate plan I think is exactly the right approach. And the reason why it doesn't seem to have more teeth as of today is because while our climate law is in place, the cost numbers have not yet begun to really bite hard. As we get towards 2020 and beyond, those numbers are going to require much bigger innovation, the 10,000 innovations between the rotary phone and the Twitter IPO. If we don't keep these laws in place, we defeat our ability to have a structure where the state can operate on these things. But I think we actually are on the right path here. Are we on a fast enough path is, I think, the question behind your question. I would say we're not on a fast enough path, but 375 is a landmark linking of land use back to climate. Right here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Peter Joseph from Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, it, I, I just want your opinions about how would our lives and your work and all the work that's being done to pull us out of the climate ditch that we have done, how would that change if everybody on the planet knew that carbon pollution was on schedule to become less and less profitable through a progressively rising fee on carbon emissions levied on fossil fuels at their point of entry in the economy? In other words, the carbon tax that we've discussed. Uh, Dr. Kamen said that the carbon markets haven't worked and indeed emissions are not going down. And wouldn't it be wonderful and the political picture that people need in their minds to change their votes, to have a campaign to use the most powerful engine in the world, in the human world, outside of nature, which is the economy itself, to rescue us from the hole that we've dug ourselves through the, fee, the, the free fossil fuel feast, to quote Naomi Oreskes, that we've been on for the last 250 years. Isn't that the, the enzyme, the catalyst that we need? 
Tom, I wonder if you could speak to that, and also perhaps in your own thinking, how you evaluate that kind of option versus Keystone. When you think about a carbon tax, let's separate it. I think you asked two questions, Peter. One was, economically, what difference does it make? And secondly, politically, how does that fit into all the other solutions? The way I think about business is it's a very, think about them as a computer program, and I'm a 30-year business person. They put into their program the potential revenues and the costs. And if you tell them there's a new cost, they will factor it into every single decision that they make. And not only will they decide if we, and let me give you an example of why that's better than, the, than a series of decisions dealing with a series of industries. Let's say we incent wind. We're making a decision that clean wind energy is something that we should support as a society, so we subsidize it through tax breaks, which is, in fact, the truth. What that doesn't do, that, that encourages wind, but what it doesn't do is let the people who are making investment decisions compare wind equally with solar or hydro or anything else. When you do a pure carbon tax, it's put into all the programs, and then you think about wind. Wind doesn't get any subsidy. It's being treated fairly because all the costs of coal, of natural gas, of, of uh, oil are included in their production. Right now, they basically are in the position where they have pollution costs, which society has to pick up. And so instead of doing... So I love a society-wide, full-cost accounting of, uh, of costs so that you can compare between the different industries. So that is one thing that we've traditionally been able to do, and American industry will fight it right up to the second where they use it to solve the problem. (laughs) The second thing about this is, politically, how does this fit in with all the other things we're trying to do? This is the, you know, what we need is to limit this, and we need to do a full-cost accounting. Now, let me just say, full-cost accounting sounds great, because what it really says is, we're going to include all the costs, and we're going to make each industry pay the full cost. So, for instance, coal has $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour health costs in terms of the people who live within a mile. If you live within a mile of a, of a coal plant, your kids are going to get asthma with a much higher degree of likelihood. It's bad for you from a health standpoint, and it's $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour. For those of you who don't spend your time thinking about energy production, the average is around $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour. So a free $0.04 cents is an amazing subsidy to you. But let me ask you another question when we're talking about full-cost accounting because, you know, in this, God is in the details. What does it cost for us to keep the Straits of Hormuz open so the oil can free, can flow from the Middle East, and who is paying for that? We have two fleets, 365 days a year, sent out into the ocean to protect the Straits in Asia and the Straits in the Middle East. That is something the taxpayers of the United States pay for without any question, and it has 100% to do with the free flow of oil around the world. What is full-cost accounting under those circumstances? But the fact is, for carbon, we can do this. It will let people compare across, and that is where we have to get. The question is, politically, how do we get there? How do we incent people to care about this? What are the things, how do you speak, you know, Bill Clinton is smart. And he described the job of a politician 
as taking a complicated policy that no one understands. Look, remember, Americans didn't like 11th grade science. When Dan showed up, they left. <laughs> they didn't. Most people don't want to think about science, and they certainly don't want to think about this. So what Clinton said is, the job of a politician is to take a complicated policy idea and translate it into words that people can relate to and care about. That's the job. So you remember, don't ask, don't tell, mend it, don't end it. That's what he was doing the whole time, was trying to take ideas and translate them into something. Americans spend five minutes a month on politics. Five. It better be short and sweet. It better be straightforward, and it better hit him right in the gut. Let me just add one, one thing to that, because I think that, the, that, this, that what Tom just said is really key. Fight it up into the point that it's inevitable and then find ways to exploit it. And we've seen that over and over again. The military was seen as, for the longest time, as a real stumbling block on this. They weren't going to turn around. They invested their DARPA money in things that didn't have any relation here. And then when the number came around that a barrel of oil cost $1,000 on the battlefield... The military is now the biggest driver of fuel cells, of solar, of all kinds of efficiencies, and it's this turnaround of the last minute. California's policies, as imperfect and still in formation as they are, have already turned off coal projects that were under construction and coal projects that were going to be built across the Mountain West because they weren't seen as profitable. I just went to visit a company in Montana and they've said, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do. We had a board meeting. We had a crisis. We had an all-hands-on-deck. It kind of sounds like a few baseball teams I know. Um, and what they said is, we realized we have all these land assets. Now we're going to invest in wind. They would never have gotten there without that push. And so are our policies today perfect? No. But if you don't get these structures in place, you don't get that innovation on the private sector and then the universities in those states seeing this as the next place to go innovate. Peter, we have a question back here. Yeah, so uh, Tom said earlier that he thinks science is not the problem, and I totally agree with him. I think, though, that there's an additional problem in what I'd like to call shadow science. <laughs> and if we uh, take what Dan said earlier about if Keystone XL is assessed strictly on GHG emissions, it's not going to get approved. But the most recent government-commissioned assessment of it shows that the uh, carbon increases are pretty much negligible. And to use the words of Tom again, any idiot, of course, can look and say, you know, gallon for gallon, this oil and gas has a higher carbon intensity of what the majority of uh, oil and gas is being produced globally. And so my question is, I wonder what you guys think are the challenges for restoring integrity to science, and what are the challenges for getting the government to respect that integrity? For every study that there is showing that fracking is dangerous, there's a study showing that uh, you can drink a glass of fracking fluid and you're going to be perfectly fine. So, um, uh, of course, that government-commissioned study, uh, weeks later, they were shown to be a, a ton of conflicts of interest. They had uh, relationships with investors and TransCanada Corp and all that sort of thing, and they're doing another assessment as a result. But it just seems like that's just a constant challenge and a challenge to the American people to decipher between what we know is the true facts of set science and this other kind of science that we're being constantly bombarded with. Can, you, uh, let me, can I just give you a, a quick response on that, on the Keystone question part of it? I mean, basically, the people who, 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 were, who were designated because it's an international pipeline 
to, to determine whether it caused an increase in greenhouse gas emissions was the State Department. And they did hire a firm which had previously been hired by TransCanada, but which they neglected to mention that in their statement of uh, history, which meant, means that they're going to redo the work. But the basic way they looked at it was this. They said, this stuff is going to get developed under all circumstances, so therefore the only thing we're talking about is how it gets transported, which is, is it going to be through a pipeline on railroads, through other pipelines going across the Rockies or back to the Atlantic, or is it going on trucks? And they determined that if you assume that it was getting developed under all circumstances, the pipeline didn't ha- had a negligible impact. Well, the fact is, the pipeline, they as- all the things that they assumed that were possible turned out weren't possible. The, pi- the second choice was to go to British Columbia. British Columbia turned down their pipeline. Th- there was a big rail disaster car- that caused... Uh, a bunch of people to die. So all of the assumptions that it was going to get developed under any circumstances at the same pace turned out to be false. Now, that didn't just happen. What happened was, and I I think that they were basically making an argument about how this was a jobs builder for the United States that had no greenhouse gas impact. The jobs, it turned out, they were completely exaggerating, and it turned out that their alternatives weren't true. So make two points. One, somebody spoke back to them. Bill McKibben spoke back and said, baloney, your numbers are false, and made it a political issue. And he deserves a lot of credit for it. Because it's easy to win an argument if no one is arguing against you. And that is actually what was happening with Keystone. On the jobs issue, which is an absolutely critical issue, the assumption here is either we do Keystone or we don't do Keystone. No, the fact of the matter is either we develop energy one way or we develop it another way. So that's like saying either we're going to put solar on the roof, it's going to produce this many jobs, or we'll never produce another job and we'll never create another kilowatt. No, the alternative to Keystone is doing it a different way that will produce 10 times more jobs or 100 times more jobs. So... I believe, you know, I make one last point, which is this. The criteria looked clean when the president talked about them in July. But don't forget, if you read the papers, we're in a political situation here. Criteria are not clean. There's a huge political overlay to this, which is why, you know, people in D.C., when the, the president is weighing this in the context of all the other things he needs to deal with, the budget, the debt ceiling, and all the other things he'd like to pass from, a, from a, a legislative standpoint, and the 2014 midterms. So there, it, the scientific criteria look clean, but Washington, D.C. is a complicated place. And this is why I actually think this case is why I brought up things like the North Borneo case, because we fought the battle, we won it, but the, the, the reward for that victory is you get to keep fighting it. You have to keep doing the science, and we've consistently found when I employ Canadian groups, U.S. groups, that those tar sand barrels are 20 to 30 percent dirtier than the other barrel. The bottom of the barrel of oil, if you will, is dirtier. But the science is only the substrate, the beginning of this broader engagement. And so when Alberta was saying, well, if you don't take it in the U.S. and get the jobs and the export money, because all this oil is basically going to Louisiana to sell for a few fat cats, Then they said, we'll send it to China via British Columbia. British Columbia said, we just did our own analysis. We're getting 232 jobs out of this. The answer is no. Alberta was then faced with California saying, we don't want it. 
British Columbia saying, we don't want it, and now a huge battle on their hands, and my Canadian friends are shocked. They're saying, we're the bad guys in any discussion, and that's not the Canadian way. And so you turn this around by not winning the story with the science, but you've got to have it in your back pocket. I, looking into the lights, is there a question in the back? I can't see. Okay. Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. My name is Vera Pardee from the Center for Biological Diversity. I have a question for Tom. Um, it seems to me the million-dollar question raised by the discussion is the one you posed, which is how do we change the votes? What is it that we're going to say to make those five minutes a month actually effective? And um, the Keystone fight is, has been effective, in my opinion, because it has done a little hat trick. It has been able to unite a splintered community, a community that has, you know, that has many hobby horses, uh, different goals, yet the Keystone fight and Bill McKibben's work was able to unite at least the, uh, the advocacy group and business group and everyone else um, pulling in the right direction. Um, but Keystone is, of course, just one issue. So my real question for you is, you must have a matrix. You're a smart guy. You must be figuring I out... I by saying I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but you must be figuring out on a local, regional, and national level how do you s sort the issues to come up with a one that you believe has the highest ROI? Okay, so let me just take that question because that's a great question. I actually see it completely differently. This isn't an issue. We think that we can win consistently around the United States, but it's a local question. Energy in the United States is local. It's generated locally. It's used locally. The votes are local. So we have to have the ability. Right now, we're spending a lot of time and a bunch of dough in the governor's race in Virginia, where there's a guy running who sued University of Virginia for teaching climate science, which is an amazing fact. And it is absolutely important that that guy not be the governor of Virginia, partially because he would actually have an impact, and partially because everybody else... When I said that, you know, there, there was a senator who wouldn't vote on gun control because she felt she'd lose her job, she, you have to know that if you take these crazy positions on energy that you're not going to win. So our key is to be able to go to Virginia and look and see not just how do you defeat that, defeat that guy and put in someone who's much better, not just how to defeat him, but how do you defeat him so he knows he's losing on energy and climate. Because it's not enough that he loses because he's been sleeping with barnyard animals. That doesn't make the point. We don't do that. No, we, do, yeah, we don't do that. He has to lose for the right reasons to make the point. So when you think about American politics, and we can do this. When, when I told you what I thought we'd learned in California between 2010 and 2012, we don't think California, people think California's crazy, right? We've done this in Massachusetts. We don't think California's crazy. We think the rest of the United States is like California, but you need to translate California into a local place. So in California, we don't use coal. You want it? We, do, we really don't. We don't do heavy manufacturing. If you go to Ohio, which is considered a coal state, which does heavy manufacturing, that has real capability there, and start talking like a Californian. A, they don't like Californians coming in and telling them what to do. 
B, they have a different issue, and you have to translate it into words they care about and win locally. Because if you want to win, any, it, it's not just the legislature in Ohio if you want to win. If you want to win Senate or Congress or anything else, you've got to be local with messengers who are credible on the topics they care about. And that's what we think we can do. I'm sure we're all extremely disappointed that we're at the end of the time for this panel. I don't know if Dan and Tom have any time to hang around for a moment anyway. I know you've got crazy schedules. But I would like to ask both of you in closing if you'd like to make a final comment. And I I know one thing I'm going to hear from a lot of people. What can I do? So I would ask each of you, from your perspective... What would you, if you had a chance to talk one-on-one with everyone in this audience, what specific actions would you urge them to take? Do you want to refer them to a website, sign up for this? What would your advocacy be? Okay. I, I actually came here with one of the people from my office because he is a Cal undergrad and could deliver me successfully to the room. <laughs> And he has successfully delivered me to one other room. And after it was done, he, he, I said, how did you think that went? And he said, I'd give you a B minus. We grade tough here. It's, <laughs> for, for me, a B minus is a good grade, though. And he said, you need to be clear with people what they can do. So let me talk, I want to make two points. The second is what you can do. The first is this. Look, to me, this is the St. Crispin's Day speech. It really is. Go back and re- I don't, I'm not going to, you guys want to go root for Cal in an hour. Good for you. But this, to me, is St. Crispin's Day about what it means to do it together. Democracy does not work unless people actively take part, volunteer, make it happen. We are not going to defeat the largest industry in the history of the world passively. If you guys leave, if everybody leaves and goes home and says, Dan was great, Dick was great, the other guy I can't remember, that's not enough. We've, you actually have to participate. I'll give you the numbers of our, um, our websites, which is www.keystonetruth.com and www.nextgenclimate.org. But the truth of the matter is, what we need is for the American people to think this is their challenge. And if enough of us do that and volunteer and think this is the number one issue of our, it's more than of our generation, if this is how we're going to look back and talk to our kids and grandkids and say that we did a good job, that is what it will take for us to win on this. And that's what the people in this room, we really need each other to do that. So for me, it's a pretty simple equation. On the first slide I put up, I have the website of our laboratory, and that is groups like ours and at Stanford and elsewhere that do work at the boundaries between science and policy and politics need your support. And so supporting labs, and we have some people in the room who are doing that, supporting these types of groups at all these universities is critical because this area of being a public intellectual and engaging and assisting the policy world or playing that role in doing science, no matter what we say, is not well supported. It's in the gaps. And so that's one thing which is a real self-serving version of the story. 
but it leads into the second part of it, and that is that the voluntary issues, the putting solar on the roof, the electric car, having the heat pump, to the Tom Friedman articles about making your home a green leader, those are the places where you try out and you gain the experience to know that the Tesla fire was a unique event and is fixable the next round of Teslas so that we can demonstrate that the green energy economy isn't just a green substitute for the black energy economy, it's a better economy. That's the story that we need everyone to be able to say with conviction, not to say I read an article in Science of American or New Yorker, and I, I, I think it's true because I read it, but you have experience with it so you can go fight those fights so that the politicians who run for office and say, I'm campaigning on the green energy platform, don't just say, well, this could be better, that everyone who votes for them knows it's better, and that those are the elections where you kick out the coal or the dirty or the waste politician and put in the good one. So it's that story at home, and then it's that story in public. And that's got to be the case if we're going to make this 37 years, which is really short in the energy economy, one where we recreate the Industrial Revolution in the last 150 years in under four decades. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.